You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Good morning. My name is Mason King, and I want to begin this service a little differently. Uh, I want to read a prayer that our brothers and sisters in the Anglican tradition read to finish their days. And so... Uh, Our text today has a great deal to do with the posture of our hearts, because to mock God is to turn our nose up to him, is to think we can get or we can do what we want and get away with it in the long run, that we can enjoy God's gifts and ignore God himself. And so this prayer reminds us of our need for sobriety instead of self-loathing of our remaining in need of mercy and being deeply loved. Those in Christ are new creations as dependent on grace and in need of mercy today as the day we were born. And so I'll read the prayer. You can just listen and take it in. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live in a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Our passage begins with, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. And Paul is clear that you and I are in danger of being deceived and that when we believe falsely, we mock God. And so this mocking, like I said, is the picture of turning your nose up at God to consider who he is, what he provides, and what he requires as not good enough. It's to tell God that we'll take a crack at it ourselves, to try and make ourselves happy because his way doesn't seem to be cutting it. And God tells us that we have foundational and felt needs and that he alone meets both as they are designed. Because we need mercy because we have sinned against God himself. We need grace because sinning against God deserves punishment equal to his glory. And we need a savior because we are sick with sin and we cannot help nor save ourselves. We are broken in need of rescue. And we need forgiveness because we will battle against our flesh, the world, and the devil every day of our lives. And apart from the work and the grace of the spirit, we will not win. These foundational needs are what God provides for us in Christ. And so when we put what we want over what we need, we begin to worship a God made in our own image, not the God of the Bible. 
And so I want to remind us that the last 400 years of Western civilization have seen monumental changes in what we have come to accept as reality. From the Enlightenment forward, there has been a consistent effort to move directional authority, governing authority over our lives away from God, His Word, and the church. To move it away from God, His Word, and the church to our inner reason, experience, and emotions. So individual freedom and scientific, scientific objectivity have been leveled at God's authority where you and I no longer value faith in what we cannot see. And we've dismissed the truth of divine accountability for our actions. One scholar writes, he says, there's an implicit strategy at work here that will have an enormous impact on Western culture. The attempt to locate supreme power and agency within the individual by remaking the self into the final arbiter of truth and the center of initiative, individualism becomes entrenched and the dominance of the church is severely undermined. This individualism leads to a desire for uniqueness, where we search for the inner voice that tells us who we really are. It's said that to live in conformity with this voice is to be entirely ourselves. And many people up to the Enlightenment looked inside only to find emptiness and then to turn out of themselves and, be, and to find God and be filled. And now the culture looks inside to find authority and meaning, to be filled with whatever it deems best. Now, I'm talking to you. These ideas are from the 16 to the 1800s, but they could easily be about the world that you and I woke up in and that we find ourselves in right now. A culture dominated by finding and aligning with their truest selves. No governing truth other than the truth is what you make it. And so as I was thinking about preaching this week, for where the Lord has us as we're preaching through Malachi, and then where I wanted to go this weekend and was trying to think through it, what hit me is that there's a great deal of talking about God's good design in evangelicalism, and it's appeal to persuade someone that there is a rhythm to the universe, an objective truth that doesn't erase difficulty, but brings true life. And this is right and good. But, and in this design, there is accountability for our actions. People make choices. I tell my kids this all the time. My wife's right here. She knows this is one of my favorite things to say. People make choices. Choices have consequences. Good or bad. And it all matters in the end. And so in a world where truth is subjective, accountability is absent. Mankind has turned its nose up to God, choosing to mold him to our cultural values, and we, the church, are in danger of doing the same if we primarily focus on getting our felt needs met and ignoring the foundational realities of God's world. Felt needs that are genuine, but they are not our primary issues. A counselor, David Pallison, said this. He said, we can easily make Jesus and the church exist to make us feel loved, significant, validated, entertained, and charged up. And the logic of this therapeutic gospel is a Jesus for me who meets individual desires and assuages psychic aches. If this is your primary view of Jesus and the role of the church, let me remind you this morning 
Yes, the power of God heals our hurts. Yes, we are broken and in need of restoration. Yes, we are meant to live in interdependence, building each other up in love, but not for your uniqueness and comfort. For God's glory to be known and him to be worshiped. And so our primary needs involve that objective reality that we live in God's world. Sin is real. Hell is real. And we are loved even as we are held accountable for our choices. We like the love part and we sing about it a lot. But the accountability part is a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow. We ridicule self-discipline towards holiness, but we praise self-discipline towards fitness. And we are in danger of being deceived and dying from sin while you and I are fighting to lower our BMI. Oh, you find that funny? You find that funny? You like, you like it? Well, it's true. We make fun of people that control their urges and we give ourselves license. And the Lord calls us to holiness. And so mocking God is to stop fearing him. We chase comfort in a glass, screen, or substance because we don't believe holiness will satisfy us. It is to cease respecting him rightly, to quit giving him the place and honor he deserves in our lives. And so mocking God is to look inside ourselves for truth when he alone is truth. We compete for status because we want to be validated. And in this, we make our felt needs primary. Feeling accepted, understood, and safe. Those are all true needs. But we are in danger of making this the primary message of the gospel. The pendulum has swung over the years. It's swung from, I'm I'm self-loathing, self-condemning, I am a worm, this over-application of total depravity to an experience-centered, I'm okay and this feels nice. The world, low, the world has lowered its standards, so God probably has. Let me focus on how I feel. And where the scriptures call us to believe that God loves us because he's good. He gives mercy to the broken that we might be made new. We are called to act out our faith because faith without works isn't faith, it's just head knowledge. And the Bible calls it dead. To know something and not to do it is to know it but not believe it because if you believe it, you'll act on it. And so when we make our emotional response, when we make our emotional response and our feelings about Jesus, the primary filter of our obedience to Jesus, we miss the fundamental reality that we need mercy from Jesus every moment of our lives. That all we have is grace. And life itself is a gift from God's hand. There's a level of respect that is different from our looking to feel safe and seen. And we get both, but don't you get it twisted. We get both, but you need to get the order right. Everyone has a head knowledge of God. The Sunday school answers where you know the truth. And then we have a heart knowledge is what we functionally believe. When push comes to shove, that's what you live out of. And so this is why we know things and we act differently than what we know. And the text says, God will not be mocked. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. So you know, I like to ask you questions, so I have some questions for you. 
How do you sow? Well, no, that's not my question. Well, this is. We'll get to the questions. If you're asking, how do you sow? We sow thoughts that we dwell on, attitudes that we stay in, and choices we act on. And we sow these things every day towards God, towards ourselves, and towards others. And the text is saying you can't sow corn your whole life and expect to reap blueberries. It doesn't work. It's a fundamental rhythm that God has set in motion. You reap what you sow. And so for those in Christ, the temptation is to sow to the flesh and act like we will reap holiness. And this is no different from the the Pharisees that Christ called whitewashed tombs. Clean-ish on the outside, dead and dying on the inside. And the whitewashed reality exists in some of our lives because it is deliberate and deceitful. We hide parts of ourselves from God and others, presenting as clean, happy, or just as bad but not worse than those around us. Meanwhile, you are deceived and dying on the inside. And if you think you've got this under control, the text calls you blind and deceived. You are reaping what you've sowed, and you need mercy. You need sobriety of thought. If we have moments of clear thinking about our sin, you might feel a sense of guilt or even a right sense of shame, which, surprise, the Bible calls conviction. You might even have a noisy conscience. Some of us look for mercy not to turn towards holiness, but to soothe ourselves. And this is not sowing to the Spirit. It's calming our conscience so we can just assure ourselves that we're loved and our actions won't have consequences. This is cheap grace. This is not what the Bible teaches. If love never comes with discipline, you are not being loved. You're being left to yourself, which should terrify you. So Romans 1, Hebrews 12, it should terrify you. If God never corrects you, the Spirit never convicts you, you are deceived and in danger. You You have made your feelings paramount over your faith. So I'm still in school, I'm trying to quit, and uh, (laughs) I'm studying Jonathan Edwards, who is an 18th century New England pastor, and most of you know him for a very famous sermon that he preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, This gets used as the poster child for a hellfire and brimstone sermon by our culture, which gets mocked. That's pretty telling to me how we view a culture that understood truth to be objective, accountability to be real, and life to be short. I read a lot of his sermons, and what I take from Edwards is the God he talks about is a God unlike mankind, and because he is God, he has the right to do with his creation as he chooses, and cultures move to try and take God's rights away from him as like a child turning their nose up to their parents. I experienced this yesterday at lunchtime. (laughs) It's true. The parental rights exist regardless of the child's tantrum. And so Edwards preached that sermon to remind his people of God's holiness, the reality of accountability, and the existence of eternity without God. You want to know how the congregation responded? They responded with such loud crying that he had to stop preaching. He had to stop preaching and begin praying with people. They had come to their senses. They knew they had mocked God, 
and that they would reap the whirlwind if they did not come to Christ again and again. So let me ask you these questions. Where are you mocking God, sowing to the flesh and expecting to reap holiness? Have you made your feelings primary over the fundamental truths of our faith? And have you ignored accountability, choosing the short term instead? Verse 8 says, For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. So I'm speaking to those in Christ. God has made us. He has pursued and dealt with us and our sin at great cost to himself, even Christ dying on the cross. And even as he loves us, sin, the presence of, the influence of, and our sinful actions from birth means we cannot be with him as we are. We have to be forgiven and born again and learn to act out of, live into what God has made true of us in Jesus. He has put his spirit in us and now we are called to live out a life with and in Christ. Tim Keller helpfully described our reality by saying, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's the truth, and it's in the right order. Because in this, we are also responsible for our actions because faith without works is dead. And a high percentage of the New Testament pastoral letters are explicitly moral teachings about how to put off sin and live into the character of Christ because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so the message is on repeat, and it's clear. Honor God with all of your life for all of your life. All of it. Don't hide part of it. It does you no good. It is fooling no one but yourself. And in the end, you will reap what you sow. Our definition of discipleship is that a Christian disciple is a follower of Jesus who continually surrenders all of life to God's good design for identity, purpose, and belonging. Surrender might not be a violent enough verb. Like surrender is hard work. It is active warfare, and it is the life we are called into. It is the fight for joy on God's terms. And we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. Therefore, we are held all the more accountable for our choices if we go on to show to to the flesh instead of the Spirit. You're without excuse. You have the living God inside of you, calling you forward into life. Our age would have you blame others for your choices. Anything outside of you, anyone else. Have you blame anything outside of you for your choices, but at the end of the day, you own them. And you are accountable for them to a holy and living God. If we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. And the call for the believer and the unbeliever alike is to wake up. To wake up. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. There is grace and we work out of what has been put into us. The text tells us to do this with fear and trembling because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this work, this effort in grace does not oppose grace because you are not earning a thing. If you are in Christ, you have already been justified. 
And so this effort is the work of progressive sanctification. You didn't earn a thing, but this is the free gift of God working itself out in your life. We are working from salvation to become what God has for us in Jesus. And you and I, friend, we are offered the opportunity and ability to live with a clean conscience. How many of you want that? Like to get to live with a clean conscience? It requires a humble heart, not self-loathing, not self-condemning, not self-hating. Humility. And humility is living at our station with God at his. It's sober-mindedness regarding our needs, limitations, and abilities. And these are objective realities that in a subjective culture we rail against in big and small ways all the time. Because this message drips on us from every aspect of modern life. This is it. You define reality. You choose your truth, your identity, your gender, because accountability is a myth. Really, what would anybody do to you anyway? You choose your truth. And in a heart that mocks God, accountability is dismissed until it isn't. There is a day coming, a great and terrible day of the Lord. And in a heart that mocks God, hell is ignored or explained away until it isn't. And so reaping from the flesh impacts us all. Like we talked about last week and like we talk about every week in recovery. We live in a fallen world. Sin is done to us and we do sin ourselves. Sin sows and reaps corruption. It decays truth and brings death. So more questions for you. How are you sowing to the flesh? Where have you lied to yourself about your choices? Are you playing around thinking you have more time to get it right? The Bible says you're not promised tomorrow. Don't put off thinking your future self is going to be a holier version. Fight for it now. So verse 8, but the one who sows the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. So here's how we sow to the Spirit. First thing. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You want to sow to the Spirit? You want to reap eternal life? Follow Jesus. Recognize your brokenness. The way your sin is an offense against God and deserves wrath. Believe in faith that Christ can save you from this wrath and make you new. The Bible says if you believe with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And this act of faith justifies you. It makes you right with God and places you out of wrath and in Christ. And God puts his Holy Spirit in you and by living in the ongoing and, friends, labor-intensive process of progressive sanctification, you are transformed by the renewal of your mind and your deeds show of faith that is moved from hearing to doing. It's just a reminder for you. The text tells us, and James, be doers of the word, not just hearers. Make the explicit knowledge become implicit and live out what you believe. There are many hearers and people who love content with little life change. Our libraries, our phones, our fact-checking is full of content about the things of God and how much of that have we taken in and been transformed by. So we consider our thoughts, attitudes, and 
daily choices and seek to honor God with each of them. And then there are some things that we do together. These are, I would call you to actively sow to to the Spirit in these well-worn paths of Christians before us. First is Bible reading. Read the Bible. Read God's word about himself. Live in the Bible. Don't treat it like it's a science experiment. Read it and live in that world. Get to know the God who has saved you or the God who will save you if you will embrace a humble station before him. Pray privately with God. Learn to talk to him, to abide in Jesus, to walk with him. Bring your needs to him, but also listen to him. Pray by yourself and with others. Regularly be in person for worship. There is something different about being in this room together. I can tell you how many, how many Sundays over the years I have needed to hear you sing because I didn't want to. There is something different about seeing other people who have confessed, I'm broken and in need. I don't have it all together. We all need Christ. So regularly come in person and be here and look each other in the eye and say, you and I both know this is true, that we are broken and he is good. Regular hearing of God's word. We need to be confronted with God's word. We speak to ourselves more than anyone else. We need to hear what God says over what we tell ourselves. And then regularly receiving the Lord's Supper that you and I would be able to do what the Lord commanded us, to remember and proclaim whatever we gather, that we are all in need, that he has provided for us, and one day we will join with him in a meal together. It's a chance to look up from ourselves, to look around at the people that we're with, and to look forward in hope. Do you want to sow to the Spirit? Do these things. Think about your actions, your attitudes, your choices, and do these things. Because these ways of sowing to the Spirit help keep us from being deceived as they remind us of truth. They sober us against mocking God with our actions. And they remind us of the objective reality that we all share. So strengthen, they also strengthen our faith in God's good design as we fight for holiness. And at the end of the day, they help us see Jesus. They help us delight in Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, and to prize him and what he tells us about God above everything else, so that we can actually fight for joy. I have wrestled today because this text is a sobering text, and I think that we are drawn by love. We are shaped by love. But that love has to be met with a holy fear and a respect of God. He will hold us accountable and he loves us. The Christian walks with this holy fear and love. And so the promise of reaping eternal life from sowing to the spirit is meant to motivate us in hope because we experience this kingdom quality of life now in part and later in full. You want human flourishing, you will be disappointed looking to realize it this side of glory. The idea of human flourishing is living into God's good design. It's a restoration of his reign and rule breaking into this world through his people until the day of Christ's return. 
And so for our part, it's a process of surrender through struggle and perseverance in faith as we honor God with our lives, now in part, later in full. But I I have thought this and I have talked to some of you that expect human flourishing to feel like a runner's high. Just mountaintop to mountaintop. It's a cool montage walking through the park with music in the background. Like this is what it means. Well, this side of glory, that is not what we will experience in part, but not in full. We will have glimpses of it because life this side of glory is a constant mix of joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain as we fight against our flesh, the world, and the devil. But I want to ask you, and I want to actually want to remind you this, how we embrace, medicate, or reject this reality is also a form of sowing. Because until Christ comes, the flourishing we fight for is increasing freedom from the power of sin, a transformed mind to delight in Christ, and a strengthened resolve that God's way of living is best, regardless of what short-term gain the world tries to sell us. So the great work of your life and mine is wrapped up in this text. One who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life, and let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Because when accountability seems distant and we're tempted towards comfort, perseverance is crucial for sowing to the Spirit. And when we sin against God, ourselves, and others, the path forward is not self-hatred or self-soothing, not condemnation or license. It is a sober request for mercy from a holy God and the assurance of his love, even as we are being redeemed from our brokenness. And so I'd ask you this morning, are you weary of doing good? Have you grown weary of fighting for holiness? Are you tired of fighting your flesh, the world, and the devil? I would warn you that rarely do we face plant into sin. Often it's, it's a subtle but progressive decline the opposite of what you read in Psalm 1, where the man walks in the counsel of the wicked. He stands in the way of sinners and then sits in the seat of scoffers. He mocks God, not all at once, but by degree until he's no longer moving, but sitting still, deceived and corrupted. It's also what we see in James 1, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If we entertain sin, it will devour us. If you war against it, you sow to the Spirit. And so in the moment of trial, temptation, or opportunity, you reap the kind of character you have sown beforehand. You can't do otherwise. Like, you can't do otherwise in that moment. You try and reach for a gear you haven't developed in the spirit. It's not there. Yes, come on. That's good. You sow a character. You can't otherwise act out. You can't act out anyone but who you've become. And Second Peter, for the last few years, has been a very, has been a very sobering encouragement to me in this. So I'm going to read this long passage for you. 
You with me? Okay. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is a call to sow to the Spirit and a reminder that we do not do this as self-sufficient, self-sovereign individuals, but as interdependent members of the body of Christ. What were those last two things? Brotherly affection and love. Not self-reliance and self-determination, but to be a member of the body of Christ. We have an interest in seeing each other persevere in hope, and we need each other if we're going to make it to the end. It's not going to happen on our own. So that list I gave you, four of the five ways, I recommend you sow to the Spirit, have the community and faith in mind. So if you're hiding, if you're alone, if you're avoiding being known, there is no other way forward into health. You need mercy from God and you need to be known by His people. We are all in need of this. We need to confess our sins to one another, to talk about how we hide and where we run. We need to be known and to know and then go after each other in love that is a fight for joy. It's a fight for joy because we fight to keep sowing that one day we will reap. So home group, recovery group, Bible study, core class, those are all ways you can partner with others to sow to the spirit. There are tables in the foyer, there's also tables in connection, or there are also people in Connection Central who would love to help you. But I'll end with this. If you want to quit sowing to the flesh, if you want to quit sowing to the flesh and find life in Jesus, in just a minute, the prayer team will be up here. They'd love to talk with you. If you want to say, I have been sowing to the flesh, I have deceived myself, and the Lord has given me clarity, they'll be up here. Come talk to them. If you say, I have placed my feelings how I think about God and how I feel above the reality I'm in need of mercy. Come and be prayed for. Say it out loud and be prayed for. They want to be here to help you and talk with you so you can find a step forward. So the Anglican prayer, the Book of Common Prayer that we read at the beginning has a final part. And this is how the prayer closes at the end of the day. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, 
pardon, and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please, Lord. Amen.